It's the EP Podcast. I'm Austin Horton. June 18, 2020, episode 51. And our streak ended yesterday. Yes, you may have noticed we did not release a, uh, an episode yesterday. Been a bit of a rough week, personally, at the Horton household. Uh, we, we had a, a situation with my wife medically that she's she's okay, she's going to be all right, but that, you know, puts a kink in the plans and you don't get to do everything that you would like to do. But I'd like to do nothing more than take care of my wife and my family. So I apologize that there was no podcast, but I don't apologize for why there was no podcast. And I would do it again every single time I've, I'm given that choice. And I, I know you understand and appreciate that. But thank you for tuning back in, even though we missed uh, yesterday. I do need to start by wishing my father a happy birthday today. He's turning 40 years old for the 23rd time, I believe. <laughs> uh, he's going to kill me for saying that. Uh, no, what, let's see. He would be turning da, 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 for the 22nd time, I believe, he's turning 40. So, happy birthday, Dad, and thanks for instilling a love of sports in me and supporting me and coaching me and my siblings and everything that I love from sports to musicals, to instruments, to comedy, to, to every, pretty much everything that I enjoy doing, I learned from my dad and my mom, and they always provided me with everything I needed and almost everything I ever wanted. And uh, he, he, he's lived a great, rich life. He's a good man, and he's blessed, and I'm blessed to have him as my dad. And I love you, Dad, and thanks for all you do, and happy birthday. Also, happy birthday to my cousin, his nephew, Derek, another good supporter of mine and a big BYU fan, uh, Derek. is. So happy birthday to Derek and my dad today. And that's where we start this day in sports history. Every day is where we start the EP podcast, and June 18th, has had uh, some interesting things happen. June 18, 1977, Yankees manager Billy Martin pulled Reggie Jackson out of a game against the Red Sox for not hustling. When Jackson got to the dugout, you've probably seen this, the two yelled at each other and had to be restrained from coming to actual physical blows. Became a national news story, and the, the, the game that week was NBC's Game of the Week, so the entire nation saw that game in 1977. 1941, June 18, Joe Lewis retained his heavyweight title by knocking out Billy Kahn with two seconds left in the 13th round. 1985, June 18, Patrick Ewing and the Frozen Envelope, or not, drafted to the New York Knicks. You know who went 13th that year? Utah Jazz select Louisiana Tech forward Carl Malone. 1986, Angels pitcher Don Sutton recorded his 300th win, a 5-1 victory over the Rangers. And June 18, 2014, Dodgers pitcher Clayton Kershaw threw a no-hitter. The only player to make it on base did so through an error in the seventh inning, which cost Kershaw a perfect game. But there you go, this day in sports history for the date of June 18. All right, as we do on Thursday, it's a throwaway Thursday, uh, but that doesn't mean that they're not good topics. It's just that there's a little little less detail is given on Thursdays in, in these topics. However, I saw online, I saw a 10-minute uh, feature from a Sports Center report about Wyoming's Black 14, and I had heard this story years ago, but had forgotten a lot of the details. 
Uh, and I wanted to play that in its entirety for you today, and we'll tell you a little bit more about that when we get to it. But we're going to start today with the hope for baseball, and we're not going to spend too much time on this, but you, you probably know the, the owners, the players, they've been going back and forth They in bad faith. It doesn't seem like either side really wanted to play. Well, finally this week, the players started a social media movement, hashtag when and where, as uh, Max Scherzer said, we'll play anywhere you want. Just tell us when and where. Everyone else started tweeting when and where. And it, they got back to the negotiating table. And as of right now, the latest offer from the owners to the players almost exactly matches what they offered the players in March that was agreed to in March. And if that's the case, they have to play. There, there's really no other excuse for the players to say, nope, that's not good enough because they already agreed to it in March. So now it's just a matter of getting it, the, the, the few little details left ironed out and uh, crossing the T's and dotting some I's and signing the bottom line. And baseball will start hopefully by the end of July is what they're looking for. It's a far cry from they were first aiming for the 4th of July. Far cry from that. But hey, better late than never, I suppose. I'm still mad at baseball, though. This has been a despicable display of punitive, or not punitive, but immature and uh, repugnant selfishness and greed and tone deafness. It, with everything that's going on in the, in the world, from the pandemic to Black Lives Matter to everything in between, and they're fighting over millions of dollars. Uh, gross, sick, and uh, it will last in my mind and on my heart as a baseball fan forever. I will not forget how they mishandled this situation and how M Rob Manfred has mishandled every single thing that has come up during his tenure so far as commissioner of baseball. With the NBA Orlando Bubble City looming next month, uh, Dr. Anthony Fauci uh, told uh, reporters that he thinks if football wants to have a season in 2020, they're going to also need to somehow come up with a bubble format in order to stem the, the threat of the coronavirus pandemic. Uh, of course, you know, Fauci is the director of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases, and he's on media all the time talking about the pandemic and how to handle it and how to go about it. And he said this to CNN, quote, unless players are essentially in a bubble, insulated from the community, and they are tested near, nearly every day, it would be very hard to see how football is able to play this fall. If there is a second wave, which is certainly a possibility and which would be complicated by the predictable flu season, football may not happen this year, close quote. Uh, I don't know how they would get football into a bubble city situation because uh, there's a lot more players on football teams. There's a lot more staff on football teams. There's a lot more of everything that goes into football. There's not three referees like basketball. There's 72 referees per game. That's a slight exaggeration. But if Dr. Dr. Anthony Fauci is correct... They've got to find a spot to do it. They've got to figure out how to get it done. And the logistics of it won't be nearly as simple as basketballs are. And they aren't simple. They are complicated. So this was a blow to the hopes of football being played in 2020. Uh, the NFL, though, well, all along the, the way here, is kind of balked at listening to experts, uh, and, or at least when it comes to deadlines and, and dates. And they're going to do what they're going to do when they want to do it. So we'll see how it goes. 
All right, and that brings us to 1969 and the Black 14 moment uh, at Wyoming football. So uh, the the date, as I said, 1969, right in there in that civil rights era, uh, the 68 was a big year for that, and they were Wyoming was a little more progressive in their roster makeup than a lot of teams around the country at that time, as they had 14 black players on their football roster and they were all playing it wasn't like they were just a part of the team they were all big time players and contributors on the field well if you know and you probably do the BYU is owned and run by the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints and at the time black members were not able to hold the priesthood now, I am a, a practicing, believing member of that faith, but there are things in our history that I cannot and will not stand behind and stand for. Uh, I, I don't care what the reasoning is, even if, even if someone says the reasoning is that the prophet speaks for God and God at the time did not. No, I don't, I don't care to hear that. I don't buy that. I don't believe in it. I do think that a, a man can be a prophet and still make mistakes that a human being makes. And I know in my heart of hearts that black members of the, of the church should have had equal rights to the priesthood as white members or members of any other race. And they didn't. And because of that, at the time, Wyoming players, that, that moment coupled with what they claimed happened the last time they played at BYU, including uh, derogatory slang, uh, slurs thrown their way, a picture of a, as you'll hear in the, the, the video here that, that I'm going to play, a picture of a gorilla was hung up by their locker. Uh, the, the, the fact that they, someone wrote in the paper that BYU turned on the sprinklers to wash away the, the uh, black players sweat off the field and cleanse it. It's disgusting. It's horrendous. It's horrific. And these black players on Wyoming decided, now is the time for us to take a stand. And so they decided the next year, before they were going to play BYU, they decided to approach their coach, Lloyd Eaton, with an idea to wear a black armband. And the rest is, as they say, history. Here's Sports Center's feature on Wyoming's Black 14 and the terrible way it was handled. And the it does a really good job explaining just how heroic, just how heroic, I should say, these 14 men were and still are. Here is Wyoming's Black 14. In my life, the last 50 years, it's been about wanting to tell people what really happened. I did it because of the right thing to do at that point in time. Simple as that. It was a time for me to take a stand, and I took it at all costs. It's mind-boggling. I mean, how do you do that? One day we were football players, the next day we were scum of the earth. That always was there, that albatross around your neck. You wanted the Black 14. In the late 1960s, the University of Wyoming was a football powerhouse. The Cowboys won 27 out of 32 games, 
were ranked sixth in the country following a trip to the Sugar Bowl and won three straight conference titles. By 1969, some thought Wyoming had its best squad ever. I think a lot of people felt like Wyoming could go undefeated. I think the feeling at the time was that Wyoming was as good as anybody in the country, and I think the feeling was the sky was the limit. On a campus in Laramie that was mostly white, in a decade when many college teams were all white, the Cowboys roster included 14 black players. They were led by one of Wyoming's most beloved public figures, head coach Lloyd Eaton. Take a series there and then take a series out here. Pump that every night. Coach Eaton was a very uh, militaristic-minded guy. He was very regimented in his thinking, very much of an authoritarian. He was a little bit of a hard ass. With discipline and a roster full of pro prospects, the Cowboys won their first four games in 1969. Everything was great. Everything was great. And then we're about to enter the BYU game. Brigham Young University, supported by the Mormon Church, had become a target for boycotts and student protests. The issue? Rules within the church that denied priesthood to African Americans. Some of Wyoming's black players said that treatment had extended to the football field a year earlier in the form of cheap shots, slurs, and bigotry. On the way into the locker room, there was a picture of a gorilla and a black man. As soon as we walked off the field at BYU, the sprinklers came on. Hey, did you guys see the headline? BYU washes evil off the field. Cleansing the ground because blacks had played on it. What? Really? Wyoming's Black Student Alliance planned to protest the Mormon church policy before the BYU game in Laramie. The black players supported that protest, but some wanted to make another statement. Believe what you want to believe, but just don't bring it onto the playing field. It was how we were being treated as individuals, making someone second class. Perhaps we could come up with a black armband. Maybe we can put a 14 on it because there were 14 of us. This issue had to do with black and white. This issue had to do with oppression. Keep in mind, we were in the 60s. You know, civil rights was huge. It was a time to take a stand. I don't want to be defined by my color. I want to be defined by, as Martin Luther King said, the content of my character. Okay, we need to talk to the coach about this. And the rest at that point uh, is history. A day before the BYU game, wearing their black armbands, Wyoming's 14 black players walked into the field house with a question for their coach. We were going to ask him, would it be all right to wear black armbands? We thought the platform that would be appropriate to do that would be at that game. Take a seat. He'll be with you in a moment. Mm, this might not go too well. He walks in. Coach Eaton said, I can save you gentlemen a lot of time and trouble. You know, gentlemen, you're no longer Wyoming Cowboys. As of now, you're all through. You no longer are a member of the Wyoming football team. My heart just dropped all the way to the bottom. Stunned. Silence. 
every time someone tried to say something, but, but shut up. Gentlemen, we'll just save a lot of time and a lot of breath because you are no longer on this football team. And he told us that, well, I guess now you fellas can go on Negro relief or colored relief. And that we were saving the taxpayers a lot of money because we were all on scholarships second semester. Well, you know better than to test me, you know, like he's really God. He said, most of you come from split homes and broken families and don't know who your father is. Disparaging remarks regarding race immediately? We were going over and the consensus was, if he did not like it, we would not wear them. We were kicked off of something we thought about doing. Really? Undefeated, 12th in the country, we're asking a question. It was very convenient for the school as well as the coaches to say, we broke a rule. There was no rule. That, that's true. There was no rule until Beaton says, well, you violated my rule. What rule? You. We were in shock, I think. You have mixed emotions, okay? Uh, I think you have empathy for them. Uh, but another perspective asks, you know, why now? You know, we have a good thing going, and I don't think they really thought that this was going to be the end result. The next day, Wyoming took the field without its 14 black players, six of whom were starters. The Cowboys defeated BYU 40 to seven. Outside the stadium, protesters spoke out against Coach Eaton's ruling as the black players were denied their appeal to play again that season. The players are suspended for the balance of this football season. They're suspended on the basis that they refused to play in the last BYU game without wearing black armbands. This is supposed to be the equality state, not the football state. Rules have been set up. We just did not want our young men sidetracked onto things that uh, did not pertain to the reason that they were in college. I didn't sign any papers that said I had to adhere to any uh, policies or be subjected to anything that dealt with my civil rights. The dispute remains unsettled. Neither the coach nor the blacks will back down. The majority of the state of Wyoming was angry at them. These 14 guys were damaging uh, our most prized commodity. I don't think that he's a racist or just because they were Negroes that got kicked off the team. It's a small minority and it's a shame that it's made, blown up into such big proportions. They were waving the Confederate flag, chanting, some of the guys were getting phone calls, threats on their lives. It was ugly. A sad situation that was uh, poor and not good for uh, a lot of people in a lot of ways. Even in Marlboro country, you cannot hold back the racial revolution. The next week, fans displayed armbands of their own to show support for Coach Eaton. The visitors from San Jose State showed their support for the group now labeled the Black 14. I saw armbands. Now, how unreal is that? The very thing that Eaton was trying to keep us from doing, they showed their support. It was huge. Wyoming's record remained unblemished today, except for the performance outside the stadium, where nobody won. But on the field, the Cowboys wouldn't win again. They were outscored 129 to 50 over the next four games, finishing the season with six wins and four losses.
And then the roof fell in. Wyoming football went all the way down. Down, down, down. One game they won the next year, and Eaton was gone. It was six years before Wyoming would have its next winning season and qualify for a bowl game. 1969 was a lasting stain on the program and a lifelong load to carry for the Black 14. It was a stigma that stuck with us for a long time. It was. You were part of Black 14. I mean, going to an interview for a job, that was a mark against you. We were blackballed. We were radioactive. Nobody wanted us at all. Back then, we would look at just as they look at Kaepernick now. Our message was misconstrued. Misinformation, misunderstandings, the same thing is going on. Too often things go awry and they go crazy without us asking the question, well, why? We're supposed to learn from history and we don't. Uh, it, it continues to happen. And this is just a great illustration of that. And what we were fighting for then is true now. You fight for your rights, but fight for what's right. Very powerful stuff there. You can watch that in its entirety. Just go to YouTube and search The Black 14. You'll find it there, Sports Center featured uh, vignette there. Uh, not a great moment in history as far as how uh, they were treated and how uh, th th that Lloyd Eaton should just be ashamed of himself and his legacy is completely tarnished forever because of his decisions there. Uh, as is BYU's history uh, in, in that moment. And, and I cannot uh, have more honor and respect for those 14 men then and now who a lot of them lost their chances of playing professionally because of getting kicked off the team there. You heard in that feature, some of them lost job opportunities. Uh, and you know what? I, I think that every one of them would look me in the eye and say it was totally worth it and they would do it again. And that's those are real heroes. That's the kind of stuff we need to pay more attention to and learn from. Not just make it uh, a little check mark in history. Oh, this happened on that day. No, when stuff like that happens, it should change the way the course of history therefore thereafter. And it hasn't. Hopefully this year, hopefully this movement does so. And I can I can't stand behind those words more. And tipping my cap uh, even higher to the Black 14. That's going to do it for a Thursday edition of the EP podcast. Make sure you catch the movie zone tonight. Johnny Lightfoot and I, we're going to talk with Marshall Moore and Matthew Crandall of Utah Film Studios. Yellowstone, Kevin Costner, the big hit drama series filmed right here in Utah at the Utah Film Studios. Big news about that coming up here on the movie zone tonight. And we're looking back in the archives at Toy Story 3. Why? Tune in and find out. That's it. I'm Austin Horton. I'll see you on a Wear Red Friday. Until then, be good to each other. Time now for the laugh of the day. <laughs> hey, you could spot hundreds of people at Charlotte Motor Speedway. No, they weren't late for the race. They were just on time to clean up. With more than 100,000 people at the Speedway for days, you can only imagine the mess left behind. WBTV's Steve Onosword was there, and one thing in particular might have you shaking your head in disbelief. 
It's like this every year after the big race at the Charlotte Motor Speedway. It's a big mess around here. Oh, you expect people to leave cans and normal garbage, but carpets, tarps, living room furniture, a perfectly good ice chest here, but empty. And what's this? There's a swimming pool <laughs> in between two porta johns. Let's not speculate about that. You name it, we found it. It's out there. But just when you thought you'd seen everything that people could drive off without, well, here's Jody Nash. And they left me too. That's right. When she woke up, her friends were gone. Hey, Mom, I'm okay. I'm still here in turn two. And hoping those friends remember. Y'all can get me. She did find a tent someone left behind, so at least she's got a place to stay tonight if need be, she said. Mm, only Steve Owen. And good news is we just got word that the woman that was just there, left stranded at the Speedway, did find a way back home.